Good morning, Grace. It is good to be with you this morning. And uh, this morning, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. So if you have your Bibles, please turn there with me. And this morning is the love passage. It is a passage that Tim Keller, a well-known pastor in New York City, said is the third most well-known passage in the entire Bible. I have no idea how he would come up with that number, but it does seem right to me though. It's a well-known passage. Even if you are not a Christian and you are watching with us this morning, or if you have not been walking with the Lord a very long time, chances are you are at least somewhat familiar with this passage. President Obama referred to this passage at his inaugural address to the nation after being elected as president. Uh, FDR, when he was being sworn in as president, swore his presidential oath with his hand on a Bible opened to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians 13 was read at Princess Di's funeral. There's been uh, countless references to this chapter in well-known movies. Bob Dylan sang about 1 Corinthians 13. And it's just everywhere. It truly is ubiquitous in our culture. And for good reason, it's a beautiful passage. But the main place we tend to hear about 1 Corinthians 13, the main uh, location, venue, is weddings. Or maybe a marriage seminar, a marriage conference. For many of us, maybe most of us, 1 Corinthians 13 is inextricably linked to romance. So much so that when I close my eyes and imagine 1 Corinthians 13, there's sort of a pinkish red hue and and little hearts start popping into my mind. And it's for these reasons, I think, that I tend to skip over 1 Corinthians 13 whenever the subject of love comes up. I think maybe it's a little too mainstream or maybe it's the, the hearts that, that come into my head. But for whatever reason, I kind of bypass this chapter. And maybe you do too. And I want you to know that that's a shame. It's a shame. First Corinthians 13. In this passage, we have an incredibly relevant passage. Not just for the married folks, but for us for the church, a passage of scripture that is meant to convict us of our lack of love. A passage of scripture that is meant to display in technicolor the marvelous love of Jesus and a passage that is meant to spur the church on towards greater unity. This passage can certainly be read in isolation. It stands the test of time. It's a good passage for married couples to reflect on and to to glean from and to benefit from, no doubt. But so much more than that, this is a passage of scripture that is for the church. And I am convinced it is the exact word from God that we need today. And so this morning we're going to Consider 1 Corinthians 13 with three points. Three points. The first two points are really going to talk about why love is so special and why we ought to pursue the way of love. 
And then a final point on how we go about doing that. So two points dealing with why and a final point dealing with how. And so if you have your Bibles open to this passage, 1 Corinthians 13, please follow along with me as I read. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, And we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now, faith Hope and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Pray with me. Father, thank you for this incredible word that you give us, not merely to help us to appreciate love, Lord, but to instruct us, to convict us, to compel us. And so, Lord, would you speak to us this morning. Would you unstop our ears? Would you give us eyes to see so that we might commune with you and that we might worship you and we might love? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So the first thing that we want to see from the word this morning is that a loveless life is a wasted life. A loveless life is a wasted life. And we see that in the first three verses. And so I want us to follow Paul's point and the flow of his point for just a bit. Remember back to last week. If you were watching last week, Randy closed his sermon and chapter 12 closes with this idea that there is a more excellent way. There's a more excellent way that Paul is now about to expound on. He's about to unpack this more excellent way. What is the more excellent way that Paul is referring to in chapter 12? Well, chapter 13 opens with tongues. Tongues. These ununderstandable utterances. Are tongues the more excellent way that Paul is referring to? Scholars seem pretty united in the idea that the Corinthians were caught up with tongues. 
They were preoccupied with tongues, with this spiritual gift. And so for, to, so for them, tongues could sort of be seen as a super spiritual gift. It was something that, that really displayed the importance or the haveness of a person. Well, you might remember back at the beginning of chapter 12, Paul gives a big list of spiritual gifts. It's not an exhaustive list, but it's a big list. Well, Paul puts tongues dead last on that list. And that was intentional. But here, chapter 13, Paul puts tongues first. And that's also intentional. You can maybe imagine these Corinthians who possess this gift, who are preoccupied with this gift, they start to get excited. Now Paul is going to give us our due. Now Paul is going to tell us who the true halves are. Now Paul is going to tell us the more excellent way. Tongues. No, not even close. Paul says, if I speak in tongues, in the tongues of men and of angels, and I think this is hyperbole here, what Paul is saying is, is that even if I were to speak in these ununderstandable languages, even the languages of the heavens, of, of angels, if I speak like angels, even if I possess the greatest gift of tongues, if I do not possess love, then I am noisy and I am clangy. And he keeps going. He keeps going to the very gift that he commends later and says that they're better than tongues, prophecy. Even if Paul possesses prophetic powers, the ability to take the word of God and specially and powerfully apply it to unique situations and people, or if he has the gift of knowledge, if he can understand the greatest mysteries, if his intellect uh, uh, supersedes the intellect of anyone else and he's able to apply that intellect to the mysteries of God, he's able to understand the character of God, the nuances of, of all these little aspects of theology. If he's able to do that, or if he possessed the gift of faith to the degree that he believed that God was able to do anything that he wanted, no restrictions. God can do anything. Paul says that if he possesses all of these things, but doesn't have love, then he himself is nothing. Nothing. And he even goes as far to say that if he was somehow able to lay down his life and die for another person or give away all of his things for another person, but do so without love, then he gains absolutely nothing. As one scholar puts it, Paul isn't taking love and putting it uh, in, in an already uh, crowded group of spiritual gifts. Paul isn't saying that love is, is merely a spiritual gift. It's not one gift amongst many, but a way of life. And without love, as beautiful and as helpful as these spiritual gifts may be, without love, they are worthless. They are useless. They are without purpose. When Paul speaks about tongues divorced of love, Paul says that they are annoying. They're not rich. They're not beautiful. They don't make a pleasing sound. They're clangy, loud, off pitch. It's like a neighbor who brags about a new car over and over again. It is annoying. Prophecy, knowledge, and faith. Faith, three gifts that Paul commends over and over again. 
He says that if he, Paul, he's referring to himself, he's using himself as a test case here. If he, Paul, a so-called super apostle who saw Jesus, if he exercised these gifts without love, then he is nothing. He is nothing. Now notice this. He doesn't say the gifts are nothing. No, he says he is nothing. He has no purpose. He has no telos. He is a spiritual nothing apart from love. Doesn't matter how great his gifts are. Doesn't matter how many miraculous things he was able to do. No, apart from love, Paul is spiritually bankrupt. I don't want to soften this. To be clear, Paul is saying about himself and about anyone else that if he does not have love, if he does not possess love, if he doesn't know the way of love, then God's regenerating, life-giving, and saving grace has not touched him. He's a spiritual nobody. This is the idea behind so much of 1 John 4. 1 John 4, 7 through 8. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Or 1 John 4.20, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And so you see there's a, there's a confrontation taking place in this passage. Paul is coming to the Corinthians and he's not pulling his punches And he says, you want to be something. You want to be important. You want to be a have, but gifts don't make you something. Without love, these things are truly worthless. And so if you labor and utilizing these gifts and you do so without love, then you will have lived an ineffective and worthless life. You will have wasted your life. There's a decent chance you don't know God. And if you do, your work will be burnt up on the last day. What Paul's getting at reminds me of Microsoft Excel, a program on a computer that you probably love or hate, depending on your personality. And I do not use Microsoft Excel. Uh, And that's not because of my personality. I don't like using these sorts of things, and I'm not very good at them, but the reason I don't use Microsoft Excel is because I use everything Google. So I use Google's version of Microsoft Excel. Well, a couple of years ago, uh, I was working on a project here at Grace, and that project required me to use Microsoft Excel. And so I go on my computer, and I search for Microsoft Excel, and lo and behold, I have that program on my computer. So that's great. I can go and I can do this work. I could do this project, not well, but I can do it. And so I spend a few hours working on this Excel spreadsheet and I put all the things in it that I need to put in it and I put little equations in it and I make it look nice and I feel pretty proud of it and I finish. And it's time for me to save it and send it along. I have to save it because you have to do that manually, which is another reason I like using Google. But um, so I go to save it and as I click save, a notification pops up and it says, you do not own this program and therefore you cannot save your document. And I thought, oh no, I just did all this work. But I don't 
own this program and so I can't finalize this work. I can't save this work and send it on and complete this project. I need a purchase code that verifies that I own this thing in order for it to work properly. And without this code, my work all of a sudden becomes useless. It didn't matter that I did the work. It didn't matter that I had Excel on the computer. I didn't have the purchase code. So my work was useless. I couldn't save it. I couldn't send it. Now this illustration falls apart very quickly because I took my computer to Sarah Kelly who fixed the problem in two seconds. But for a few fleeting moments, I was very stressed and very concerned that all of this work was done in vain. And that's the idea here. That's the idea. God wants us to know this morning that we can seem to be doing really well. We could be doing the work of ministry. We could be serving as core group leaders. We could be serving in the children's ministry. We could be a deacon. We could be an elder. We could be preaching at this pulpit, praying, serving, giving, working at food bank. We could do all of this, but without love, it is worthless. Not worth anything. It's like we're doing it without an Excel purchase code that makes it so that we can't save any of this stuff. It won't last. It doesn't have true and everlasting value. And this this idea, it's weighed so heavily on my heart this week. It weighs heavily because I believe that grace is a place where the love of Christ shines. I think the love of Christ is displayed in this church and from this church. And I have observed that and I've experienced that so many ways over the 12 years that I've been in this area and been at Grace. I remember my first Sunday in Southern California, the Davis family taking me by the arm and, and taking me out to lunch and welcoming me into this faith family. I remember Kenny and Dave Talley officiating my wedding right here, standing up here and and leading me and Ray Lynn to make covenant vows to one another. And they pronounced blessings over and sent us out as man and wife. Grace has been generous to me. There have been times where people have given me money anonymously at just the right time. People at Grace have extended friendship to me. In love, they've rebuked me. In love, they've received my confession of sin and gently restored me. They've been kind to me. They've blessed me. In so many ways, I can point to the fact that grace is a place where the love of Christ exists and is displayed. And I see that in so many other people as well. I've seen people be served. I've seen widows have their houses be built up. I've seen grace groups rally around people and perform weddings and take care of food and take care of every little detail so that people would be blessed and loved. I think grace is a place of love. But while being a place of love today might be a good indicator of where we will be tomorrow, being a place of love today does not guarantee where we will be tomorrow. And the Lord has sobered me with Revelation 2 this week as I've considered that idea. In Revelation 2, Jesus addressed the church in Ephesus through his disciple John, and he says this, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. 
I know you were enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Grace, this church in Ephesus, this is a church that has done well. They seem to know a lot. They are ardent defenders and champions of sound doctrine. They're persevering. And they started well in the way of love. And I think this sounds a lot like grace. I think grace too is a place that cares about doctrine. I think that's sort of a reputation that we have. We, we, we care about right thinking. We want to get it right. We want to glorify God with our minds and we want to glorify God with our hearts. And I think we started well as well. We are a place that started in the way of love and I think we're continuing in the way of love. But, but here's the deal. The church in Ephesus, their knowledge and their gifts, it didn't keep them from abandoning this love. You can start well and you can finish badly. And what are the consequences of this? If this church did not repent, then their lampstand would be removed. They will cease to be a church. They will become ineffective. They will become a worthless church. They will become no church at all. Grace, do you see the stakes of the way of love? Love is of the utmost importance. Gifts are good. Love is necessary. A church that doesn't have love is no church at all. And so this passage is a passage that is meant to compel us to live in the way of love. And it's a passage that's meant to be a warning to us, a warning to take seriously the call to love to not waste our lives toiling away in a way that doesn't matter and will only result in ruin. We must prioritize love. We must champion love. And so, what is love? That becomes the question. And that's our second point. What is love? And love is the more excellent way Love is the more excellent way. That is what Paul is trying to get across to us this morning, to get this into our heads and into our hearts. And so Paul launches into a description of love, one of the most beautiful passages in all of Scripture. Verses 4 through 7, Paul describes love in 15 ways. And he describes love not with adjectives, but with verbs. As one author says, love is dynamic and active. It is not static. It is not merely an emotion that exists in our stomachs. No, it is on the move. In these verses, love is is not uh, so much defined as as it is described. It's not a theoretical list. It's a practical list. This list of, of characteristics of love, it tells us what love is and what love isn't. And I'd like for us to try to work through some of these descriptors so that we can become more familiar with this excellent way of love and try to draw some conclusions about the nature of love. And it all begins in verse four. Paul says that love is patient. Love is patient. It's long-suffering. Love waits. 
It prioritizes another's timetable. You can think about it negatively. Impatience is simply putting yourself and your timetable first. Love is patient. Love is kind. There's a tenderness to love. To love is to show something of God's compassion to others. And so being a jerk is the opposite of love. And the sad reality is, is that there are jerks in the church. We know them. We know that they exist. And what this passage tells us is, is that a jerk Christian is an oxymoron. It is not a, a personality trait. It is a sin to be repented of. Love does not envy. And love does not boast. Love is not going to manifest itself in such a strong desire for stuff that we are either jealous of what others possess, whether that be material possessions, whether that be spiritual gifts, or we're not going to be puffed up by what we possess. Again, spiritual gifts, possessions, accolades. Love celebrates others. Love is happy for others. Love desires good for others. Verse four closes by saying that love is not arrogant. Love is not arrogant. Love opposes pride. Pride puffs up. Love builds up. Love sees itself rightly. Love sees itself rightly. And if we see ourselves rightly, then we will know that we are needy. Every one of us, we are needy. How can we be proud in the face of our neediness? Getting into verse five, verse five begins by saying that love isn't rude. It's not rude. This is one that I think we need to hear regularly. Paul is saying that love isn't shocking. Love isn't in your face. It's not trying to make a scene. Love isn't obscene. It's, it's decent. It's modest. It's proper. Love doesn't insist on its own way. On Thursdays, uh, my family will go out to watch the garbage truck pick up trash. Uh, this has been uh, a big routine in my family's uh, uh, life over the past two months. And this past Thursday, a little argument broke out. Uh, my son Henry said, there's a garbage truck. And my son James said, there's a trash truck. And they turn to each other and Henry says, garbage truck. James says, trash truck. Garbage truck, trash truck, garbage truck, trash truck. Well, this ended when Henry turned around and James comes up to him and says, trash truck, and bop, smacks him. That's insisting on your own way. <laughs> Love doesn't do that. Love is not irritable. It's steady. I find myself more and more grateful for consistently steady people. Irritable people worry me because I never know what to expect. Love is steady. It doesn't fly into fits of anger or rage. It is disciplined. It is controlled. Love is not resentful. Keeps no record of wrong. Love is willing to suffer wrong. Love, love certainly doesn't excuse or ignore evil, but it does take evil head on and seeks to overcome evil with good by embodying God's grace towards others. Moving into verse six, love doesn't rejoice with evil, but rejoices in the truth. 
Love is opposed to injustice. It doesn't matter what kind of injustice it is. Love stands against it. Love doesn't downplay evil or sin. Love rightly recognizes that God hates evil and hates sin. And instead it rejoices in the truth. It rejoices in God's truth prevailing, in God's truth triumphing. It recognizes that there is nothing to fear in truth. And so love doesn't suppress truth. It doesn't hide truth. Love doesn't shy away from the truth when confronted. Love loves truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Love has no limits. It doesn't get tired. It doesn't take breaks. It doesn't have a day off. It never comes, becomes exhausted. It never gives up and it never gives in. One of my favorite scholars, Tom Schreiner, he summarizes these descriptions of love this way. He says, love is not self-absorbed. It always seeks the good of others. It cherishes the truth and it's optimistic, but never naive. This list is a lot like Paul's list of spiritual gifts. It's not exhaustive. To exhaustively understand how, uh, understand love, we have to sympathize, synthesize all of scripture because God himself is love. It's a huge job. But here we see something of what love is like and we see love at the center of Paul's ethic for how he interacts with the world. And so what do we do with a list like this? I think we need to remember the context of this passage. Again, Paul isn't just giving us a nice little poem about love in the middle of a longer discussion about body life in the church and spiritual gifts. Rather, Paul is recognizing the church is being torn into pieces because the Corinthians are doing things that are separating themselves into haves and have-nots. They're prioritizing things like spiritual gifts. They're, they're uh, uh, creating fissures and fractures in the church as they do so. And to this rot, to this faction and fracture causing mentality, Paul gives the unity producing antidote, love. He says, love is the mark of true spiritual maturity. Not spiritual gifts, not tongues, not knowledge, not to get the faith, not prophecy, love. And as I think about where the church is most susceptible to disunity today, my mind is drawn to our present situation with COVID-19. It seems like we have a brewing controversy that is threatening to destroy the unity and the witness of the church. Should we reopen the economy or not? Should we gather together physically as a church or should we not? If so, how soon and how? If not, for how long? These are complicated questions. Complicated questions and the answers are complicated and they vary and there is heat behind those answers. I don't know of a person who doesn't have opinions on these matters. I myself have opinions on these matters. And so it, it's confusing because godly people, some of the most respected people I know, they fall on different sides of the aisles here. And that could be hard. It could be confusing. It could even be disorienting because people that we agree with 99% of the time, all of a sudden 
We don't agree with them. What do we do with that? How do we make sense that our beloved brothers and sisters disagree with us? It could become confusing. We could take that personally. It could feel like an attack or it can feel like we're going crazy. Well, I think 1 Corinthians 13 gives us a roadmap to how to engage these trying times. In this chapter, I think God gives us the antidote for disunity. And that antidote is love. And so I want to take a second and I want to do my best to try to apply this chapter to the situation that we're in. And it begins, love is patient. Love is patient. What would it look like if you were patient with the person on the other side of the aisle? What if you were long-suffering with them? What if you waited with them? What if you prioritized their process and their timeline over your own process and your own timeline? Please remember that if we begin to say that you must be on my timeline, then we're not extending grace to people. We're not extending love to people. We're creating boundaries. We're, we're, we're preaching legalism. I'll never forget a, a pastor who I... Uh, greatly respect one point, said something like, it, it is unwise and unkind for us to demand that others uh, come to our understanding when we've had years and years and years to think on these things and they have had one month to think on these things. Well, I think in a situation like this, it's also unwise and unkind for us to demand that other people be on our exact timeline as well. Might we be patient with one another? Love is kind. The conversations that we're engaging in are important, unbelievably important. And we need each other. We need our best minds to be working through these things because it matters. All of the things that we're concerned with, they matter. And so we need to be working through this. We need to be having good conversation. But here's the deal. Even if we are right, even if we are right, that does not give us an excuse to be jerks. Nowhere in 1 Corinthians 13 does Paul say, all of this is true unless you are right. Unless you have the better understanding of the situation. No, love is kind and love deals kindly, gently, graciously, and compassionately with friend or foe. And we have to realize this, Grace. We are united together in Christ. The result of the gospel is that God has mysteriously and intimately linked us together in the most profound of ways so that we experience a communion of the saints. We are linked together in such a way where we need one another. And we cannot say to one another that I have no purpose for you over here, you leg, or I have no purpose for you over here, you eye. No, God has composed the, bo the body in such a way where we desperately need one another. And so we must work together and seek to be kind. Love is not arrogant. When I, whenever the elders gather together at Grace, we read rules to begin our meetings. And one of those rules is I might be wrong. And I'm so grateful for that rule because I often don't think that I'm wrong. <laughs> I like to think that I'm right most of the time. But that rule, it's humbled me. And it's helped me to realize, yes, in fact, it is very possible that I might be wrong. Does your engagement with this question of gathering, not gathering, uh, of opening the economy, not opening the economy, does it reveal arrogance or humility? 
Might you be wrong? Might you not have perfectly understand complicated economics or complicated uh, spread of disease dynamics? I think it's okay for us to recognize that we have insufficient knowledge in this time and we could be humble. And so we could humbly engage with one another, reasoning with one another, seeking to persuade one another. Love believes all things. Do you assume the best and the people that you're engaging with? Do you assume the best in them? Do you assume that they're not crazy? That they're not stupid? Do you assume that they might have good reasons for believing what they believe? Maybe they're ignorant of other things, but there's something inside of them that is earnestly and legitimately holding on to these things for good reasons. Love believes all things. We give each other the benefit of the doubt. We don't assume the other people on the other side are terrible. No, for us who are in Christ, we have a common goal, the glory of God and the good of our neighbor. And so how we promote these things is hard. It's complicated. It's tricky. It requires wisdom and discernment. Let's assume that the people that we're engaging with, they they have actual reasons for why they are thinking the way that they are and engage those reasons. But love bears all things. Love bears all things. Maybe the people across the aisle from us are just wrong and they're dead wrong and they're, they're, they're being arrogant about it or, or maybe they are being willfully ignorant about it. Well, you know what love does? Love says, that's okay. I'm gonna hang in there with you no matter what. I'm not gonna give up on you. I'll bear with you. Jesus bore with me. And so if you're ignorant, I'll hang in there. I'll keep loving you. I'll stay with you. I'll make sure you know that nothing is gonna separate us. Our bond is too tight. Love never ends. I skipped over this descriptor of love earlier because I think we need to hear it here. First Corinthians teaches us that our gifts will pass away. Tongues will cease. Prophecy and knowledge will pass away. These gifts, as important as they are to building up the church, they will pass away. But what remains? What will last into the age to come? Love. Love will remain. When Christ returns and establishes kingdom in fullness, love remains. And so what will we prioritize in this age? The desire to be right. The desire to to throw accusations at other people to feel good in a moment, to win an argument? Or we seek to display something that is eternal, a more exceptional way. God's word is clear. We are to love one another. This raises a final question though. How in the world do we do this? We know that loving one another is, is hard. And, and even, even if I say these things, it doesn't mean that this is all black and white. Sometimes it's really loving to, to be stern with a person. And sometimes it's really loving to, to back away and, and let someone just go on in their way. So how do we manage this? How do we do this well? If love is a more excellent way and we're to love one another and gifts are worthless with, without love, then we need to get this right. How do we get love and how do we love one another? The final point from the word this morning is that we love because we have been loved. 
love because we have been loved. I've said this multiple times this morning, but one of the most important things we can do if we want to understand 1 Corinthians 13 is to remember that it is not a standalone passage. It fits within the context of Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians. And what is Paul doing in this section of 1 Corinthians? Again and again, he's critiquing the Corinthians. They sow division. They've engaged in idolatrous worship. They've blasphemed the, Holy, the, the Lord's Supper and on and on and on it goes. And I don't think Paul is letting up in chapter thir- 13. If we were to look at all of the descriptors of love in verses four through seven, I think we can get a pretty great summary of all the areas that the Corinthians are falling short. In other words, Paul didn't approach 1 Corinthians 13 and decide to introduce a song and a dance in an otherwise serious movie. Love, like, love is like, um, ah, it's patient, it's kind. No, he's, he's not just waxing eloquently about love. No, Paul is wanting to rebuke the Corinthians' lack of love. And so he showed them their sin in 3D. Christians in Corinth, you are not patient and you are not kind. Think back to the Lord's Supper. Some of the Corinthians, they were speeding ahead and eating while others would go hungry. They were being impatient and they were being unkind. There was a referent to Paul's rebuke. Christians in Corinth, you envy and you boast. This seems like one of the main things that they did. They envied one another's spiritual gifts and others boasted of the gifts they had. This is the way the Corinthians lacked love. And so Corinthian, Christians in Corinth, you were arrogant, you're rude, you insist on your own way, you're irritable, you're resentful, you, you love evil, you hate the truth, you don't bear with one another, you don't hope, you don't believe, you don't endure with one another. This is a devastating critique. And so Paul's argument comes full circle. He's saying, you prioritize spiritual gifts, but spiritual gifts are worthless if you don't have love. You don't have love, so not only are your spiritual gifts worthless, but you are spiritually worthless. Remember again, 1 John 4. If anyone does not have love, then he doesn't know God. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, then he is a liar. This is unbelievably heavy stuff. Grace would be so tempting for us to see ourselves as different than the Corinthians. They were especially bad. We are not like them, but I think we ought to see ourselves in these crooked sticks because we too lack love. If Paul had insight into your life, if he was able to see how you interacted with your husband or your wife, with your children, with your parents, with your teachers, with your friends, with your housemates, with your ideological foe on Facebook, How would Paul describe love to you? Love is not vindictive. Love is not passive aggressive. Love doesn't take cheap cheap shots. Love isn't lazy. As I consider myself, it doesn't take long for me to realize that I lack love and I'm in big trouble. And maybe you're like me. And if so, what do we do? We remember the gospel. Know this, just as 1 Corinthians 13 is an indictment against the Corinthians, it's just as much and even more a celebration of the love of God revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
It is a declaration of the love with which we have been loved by the creator of all. The Corinthians may not have been patient and they may not have been kind, but Jesus is. Jesus is patient and Jesus is kind. He does not envy and he does not boast. He does not insist on his own way. He's not irritable. He's not resentful. Jesus does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. He bears all things. He hopes all things. He believes all things. He endures all things. And guess what? No matter what, his love will never end. The love that has existed within the Godhead from eternity past didn't only stay in the Godhead. It was poured out on mankind for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that he would live and die and raise to life. And whoever believes in him would also share in this everlasting life. What is 1 John 4 tells us if we keep going, it says some hard things to us, but what also does it say? Anyone who does not love God does not know God because God is love, yes. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, be the satisfaction for our sins. Or later, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. How do we embrace the message of 1 Corinthians 13? We receive the love of God extended to us in Christ by grace through faith. We fix our eyes on Jesus, embracing his love day after day after day, and we let it well up in us so that it overflows in love for others. If we do spiritual gifts apart from love, we're nothing. Apart from love, we are nothing. But the thing is, In Christ, we possess God's love. And so we are not nothing. We are something. For God has done a great work in us. And now, now we get to take this love and we get to display it to one another, building up the church, displaying God's self-sacrificial, saving love to our community and our nations around us. Grace, what if we embrace this fully? How might that change how the world is interacting today? We can do it because God has loved us in Christ. And so now we are enabled to love in this 1 Corinthians 13 sort of way. Let me pray that God would help us. Father, I thank you for your son, Jesus. And that you have loved us in him. Jesus loved us to the point of death even death on a cross. Lord, I pray that that love would overwhelm us today, that it would satisfy us, that it would cause us to hope, be full of faith and full of love for others. Lord, we need your help. 
as we seek to walk in this way of love as individuals, as families, and as a church. Lord, help us. Help us to display your love, to bask in your love. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.